Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. I, he washed it white as snow. And uh, that reminds me of a Through the Bible fellow uh, by the name of J. Vernon McGee. That's his theme song. I, it was, I assume that it still is on his show. And uh, so. theme of the book of Leviticus, is, by way of reminder, is, is the theme of holiness. And what God has done up to this point in the book of Leviticus is He has established a, uh, a, uh, a sacrificial system. He has uh, established a priesthood. He has established and had built a tabernacle, a place for meeting with Him. And uh, so all of these things are now in place, but He knows who and what he's dealing with, even among God's people. He knows that uh, we can be a little bit rebellious or want to tend to do things on our own terms. So it's really no good to have a tabernacle, to have a priesthood, to have a Levitical system, and to have a system of sacrifices if people are going to disregard them and do their own thing. Where they look and say, well, I'm, I'm going to approach God on my own terms. And uh, I don't have to do it His way. I don't have to assemble together with the saints. I don't have to, you know, uh, 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 go to churches like this or listen to people like me or do these different kinds of things. I can go up to Yosemite and meditate on a flower and meet with God just as effectively. Well, if, that, if that's a commentary on my gift of teaching, I can understand that. But God still commands us to assemble together as the, as the saints. But we can be rebellious that way. People can be rebellious. And so God is going to kind of cut off all of this self-will, approaching God on your own terms. Uh, we don't get to approach God on our own terms. We approach God on His terms. And we're thankful that He has provided any terms at all uh, by which to approach Him. Two great rules in the universe. Remember, there is a God and you're not Him. And uh, keeps us humble. And, uh, and, and so He's going to tie up some loose ends here. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all of the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whoever... Uh, whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or who kills it outside of the camp and does not bring uh, it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man he has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people so the idea is um, God is declaring here that when he is approached uh, by uh, human beings here he is to be approached on the basis of sacrifice he is be, to be approached at the tabernacle he is to be approached through the priesthood and anyone who shows up on the scene and says I don't like that I'm going to do my own thing and introduces that leaven among God's people God said cut them off we don't get, you don't get to do it on your terms it's a pride it's an arrogance and it's a danger uh, to uh, God's people. And, and to the end, 
that the children of Israel may offer their sacrifices. Uh, I'm going to offer my sacrifices in the field. It's just as good as the tabernacle. I can do what I want. So that, that's the kind of thing. To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord and the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord so probably up to this point in time as they've come out of Israel prior to the establishment of the sacrificial system and the priesthood and all people that wanted to express their love for God or their commitment to God they were sacrificing animals on their own in their own uh, you know backyards or this or that kind of a thing God says alright we, I've understood it up to now but that was before these things were in place all sacrifices to occur the location of the temple and then through uh, the priesthood and it's the same thing today in, in Christ Jesus is the tabernacle he, the whole tabernacle the temple all speaks of, of him he is the better high priest the greatest high priest that there can be we come to God uh, through him and him alone we don't come to God on our own terms however uh, we want to and they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons and so here is is uh, one of the reasons for having the sacrifices done at the tabernacle and by the priesthood is that the people would no, uh, no more offer their sacrifices to demons. It was to be a safeguard against idolatry and apostasy. So um, uh, the, when, when, what happens when people inevitably, when people say, I'm going to establish my own relationship with God on my own terms. I will approach Him however I want. Now you're engaged in idolatry. It's basically the worship of self. I have elevated my own views above the views of God. Idolatry is the worship of any created thing, including the worship of self. And then what typically happens then with idolatry, or even if these people start to offer sacrifices where they want in their backyards or their acreage or whatever that kind of a thing might be, and then pretty soon God knows this turns into idolatry. The next thing you know they're doing it in front of some kind of a statue, and then it's an, a, a pagan statue, and then behind all pagan religion are demonic forces. And so God just said, I'm going to nip this thing at the bud. I know where this goes. It goes into demon worship and idolatry and so we'll, we'll take care of that uh, right off the bat so they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot this shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations also you shall say to them whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord that man shall be cut off from among his people God has a zero tolerance on this kind of attitude among his people we are not smarter than God uh, related to anything and uh, he, he doesn't appreciate the competition and whatever man uh, now as he heads into laws uh, concerning the uh, e forbidding the eating of blood and all whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood so drinking blood at all or eating animals that hadn't been properly bled as we've already seen in the book I will set my face against that person 
who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. That was to be the penalty. God had a zero tolerance for this too. And here's why the blood was to be honored. The animals, before they could be, after, when they were sacrificed, before they could be eaten, they were to be uh, bled. And of course, we live in a, uh, uh, the United States of America, we live in a culture that is uh, dominated by the Bible, at least in its foundation. And so, you know, the meat that we get in the stores and all, unless you're looking for something extraordinary, uh, it's, it's all bled, uh, bled meat. And so, but, but here is the reason for it. God didn't want them eating uh, uh, flesh that hadn't been properly bled, didn't, certainly didn't want them drinking or eating kind of, any kind of blood products. Here's the reason. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And those of you who may be in uh, medical school or some kind of training or something where you, uh, or, or maybe even self-training where you have a, a deep, deep knowledge of blood, <laughs> I would have turned the pulpit over to you right now and you could uh, begin to just speak about uh, the, the, how the life of the body is in the blood and what happens through the blood in the body, how, what's transferred through the body, impossible to have life without it and all. And uh, so it's, it's a study in its own right. And, and so it represents life to God. That's what blood represents. And, uh, and so the, the blood, life, it belongs to God, did not belong to them. It was to be offered to God and left with Him. He's the only one that knows how <clears throat> to handle that. So when we sing songs or... Choruses and all worship of the Lord. Maybe you're kind of new to the Lord and all, and you were singing about Jesus' blood and and things like this, and and you think, wow, that's pretty graphic. What in the world? Am I just thinking about blood? The blood that was on his uh, on his brow and and uh, on his back and 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 all come out of his side and all. Yes, okay, to understand all, all of that, his blood shed for us. But what the blood represents is his life. So when we talk about his blood, we're talking about the fact that he gave his life for us. So the life is in the blood. That's what blood represented. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And therefore I said to the children of Israel... No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwells among you, who hunts or catches any animal or bird that it may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. And so you hear you have hunters. They're going out. They're not killing domesticated animals. These are non-sacrifice animals. God even steps in and says, if you kill an animal for food, food. You have to bleed that animal. That blood is, uh, is, uh, 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 is yeah, there, there in verse 13, uh, as, as I read there, it, it, the blood was to be allowed to pour out onto the dirt and, uh, and that would ensure that no one would partake of the blood. Again, even that was, was to be uh, given to God. It wasn't, wasn't theirs. And for it is the life of all flesh. Uh, its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it 
shall be cut off. And every person who eats uh, what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native uh, of your own country, uh, that is a Jew or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be clean until evening. Then he shall be clean, uh, unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. And so here you have a person that's you know out walking one morning and they see that you know some uh, coyotes or a bear has killed something in the middle of the night and it's there it's edible and all but if they did eat it then they were ceremonially unclean for the day and perhaps it was because there wasn't the assurance that it had been properly bled but again no matter what when they were partaking of of flesh something that lived on the basis of of blood there was a, a careful handling of it recognizing that it it represented life now here we come into chapter 18 and then the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel and say to them I am the Lord your God and according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt you shall not do and according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you you shall not do nor shall you walk in their ordinances you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them I am the Lord your God and you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments which if a man does he shall live by them I am the Lord now chapter 18 the Lord uh, proceeds to give the nation of Israel a very, very uh, needed instruction concerning sexual uh, purity. Uh, it's kind of like God's uh, sex ed class here in, in chapter uh, 18. And it's very, very important that he delivered this to, uh, to the nation of Israel. Would you notice in verse uh, 1 or verse 2 specifically there that the chapter begins and it ends with the same phrase. I am the Lord your God right there in, in verse 2 and then the final words there in verse 30 I am f the Lord your God he's going to restate that phrase 42 times in the next uh, seven or eight chapters he's going to repeat it five times in this chapter alone now he's God doesn't just talk for the sake of talking <laughs> he's there's always a reason behind his repetition in in the Word of God so he's wanting to communicate something uh, through all of this and in this repetition of I am the Lord your God I am the Lord your God I am the Lord your God he is in, in saying this the Lord is giving us his credentials for giving this instruction concerning the sexual life of the child of God this is his authority for speaking and making these demands uh, upon his people would you notice that word that's used for Lord there in verse 2 <clears throat> that the word Lord is all in uppercase uh, letters and what that always means in the Bible is that the word it is the word for God that is sometimes we refer to it as Jehovah or as Yahweh and what the name means is I am I am that I am as God spoke to Moses there at the burning bush and when God comes as 
the Lord, uh, Yahweh, he is declaring himself to be the great I am. The one who lives constantly in the present tense. There is no past. There is no future for him. He lives outside of the confines of time. He is eternal. He is self-existent. He was before there was was. And so that's what he's communicating when he uses this, this kind of, uh, uses this uh, name. And the point that he's making here is that if anyone in human history rises up and teaches contrary to his standards that he lays out here, they better have better credentials than him. <laughs> they better be eternal. Uh, they better be self-existent, which none of us are. They better be omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, you know, everywhere, all at the same time. And, uh, and so no one has those credentials except God. And, and, uh, and so he's saying, don't listen to anyone in this area of, of life apart from, from me. Only God knows what he's talking about regarding this. Not, not Dr. Ruth or, or dear Abby or dear Abby daughter who took it over and she's oh you thought Abby was terrible it's a, um, or, or Ann Landers oh the next one uh, very very uh, liberal in her views on, on things but not just them anybody anybody that comes and, and violates and they got this you know PhD degree and the this and that degree and the this and they've done studies and all these different things they're just a human being they don't know what they're talking about and that also refers to uh, any laws or any sexual conduct that is protected by the laws of a nation that are contrary to God's law it doesn't matter if the whole world, or whole nation, all of the people in the world glom together and they come up against God's standard in terms of what is holiness in the sexual relationship. Altogether they don't have the credentials that God has. And so God is uniquely qualified to speak about, uh, about this as our creator. And so that's what he's, uh, how he introduces all of it. Notice in verse 3 that he tells them that they were not... They are not to uh, allow the Egyptians in their past, remember they're coming out of a 400 year history in Egypt. Egypt was a very sexually immoral country at that time very very uh, immoral so they've had 400 years where they have seen stuff that make their eyes pop out that are just were accepted in Egyptian culture and he's saying don't let where you've been the last hundred four hundred years fashion what is right and wrong related to the sexual relationship but he also says I'm taking you now into the land of Canaan and you're going to see things that are going to make your eyes double pop out the Canaanites were uh, immoral beyond description. I don't know if, if you put all same-sex group in a room that you could even talk about it uh, in, in terms of what, what uh, they were involved in as, as an ancient people. And so hey, God says, I don't want where you've been in life, I don't want where you're going in life to fashion how you think about sex and how it is to be, uh, to be properly expressed in, in life. And so the, God knows because of what they've seen, because of the fact that he is calling them to be a sexually 
holy people in a sexually immoral world by and large. He knew they needed A, B, C, simplicity and clarity related to uh, what is right and wrong, what is sinful and non-sinful concerning a sexually moral life. And as Christians, we need the same God-given definitions and instructions because we're endeavoring to live a sexually pure life in a very immoral world, in an immoral nation, in an increasingly immoral nation. So everything we're going to read about when we get reading through chapter 18, those of you who read, read ahead a little bit, you're already ready to blush. But um, everything we read in here, you think, boy, did God have to be that graphic? Did he have to be that specific about what you could and you couldn't do? I mean, he did. He did have to be. Everything that he prohibits here in this chapter was either being practiced by the Egyptians or practiced by the Canaanites. And he knew, I've got to speak to my people and make things very, very simple and clear uh, to them. I think about, you think about what God sees every single day in this world. Can you imagine? Oh, I could hardly watch the news myself. Hardly, you know, and I say hardly, I do. <laughs> but I mean, there are times where you'll go click on maybe, you know, the internet and you pick up CNN News or Fox News or something like that. And you just, oh, here's some other person that's killed three of their children and then someone over here has sliced someone's head off and then someone, and you just go, what in the, I, I, was, I was riding in the car. Uh, the other day, just this last week, and a commercial comes on. I'm listening to the radio. I wasn't listening to KEQP. Shame on me. But anyway, um, so I was listening to it, and, uh, and this commercial comes on, and it's all about a Christmas gift. And it's talking about Christmas time coming and what kind of gift to give at Christmas and all of this and in the spirit of Christmas for your loved ones in light of, uh, you know, how dangerous the world is and all of these things. And now you can buy your own taser gun. I thought, what a, what's happened to Christmas? We're talking about taser guns as like the ideal gift for Christmas in the United States of America. Nobody thinks it's weird. I'm sitting there listening. I think I'll get six. I live in Modesto. But I mean, it's, the, it's, everything's just getting so goofy and, and, and so, uh, so, so crazy here. And so you think about what God sees every single day in this world and what He sees in terms of the express, sexual expression of people every single day. And He says, I've got to get this down on paper for people. So they're real clear on what is right and what is wrong, what is blessed and what is not blessed. So God is the only authority on this subject and, and He tells us there in verse 4, He communicates His judgments and His ordinances are to be obeyed. We do not go to this pagan world for our sex education as Christians or as people of of uh, God, not to allow them to fashion our views. Not Egypt, not Canaan, not anyone, only by God. And as he says there in verse 5, God gives, he can give a promise that no one else can give to their definitions, and that is that his way and his instruction is blessed. I've never ever talked with someone on their deathbed or, uh, you know, late in life or something like that, and where they say, well, I wish I had been a little more sexually immoral. 
I wish I had, you know, been with a few more people in that. They are to a person thankful for how God brought purity to this area of their life and thankful to be able to live a pure life in this area of, of their life. It is a blessed life. And it, it requires the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live it in a sexually immoral world where the people make themselves so readily available. But it's worth the effort by the power of the Holy Spirit to live this life. And God knows what He's talking about. No one knows what they're talking about in this area of the life except for God. <laughs> and uh, so this is where the, the blessing is, is, to be, is to be found. God looks at the children of Israel. I think He can look at us tonight and just say, Listen, it has ruined entire nations. Sexual immorality has ruined entire empires. It has ruined one life after another. Now don't let it ruin yours. And now he heads in to the specific instruction. He said, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin uh, to him to uncover his nakedness. And that phrase, uncover his nakedness or uncover her nakedness, is repeated over and over again in the passage. And it speaks about having uh, sexual contact or sexual relationship with, with the person. So he, God comes in and says, you are not to have this kind of relationship with anyone who is near of kin to you. Now the Egyptians frequently married. Uh, brothers, they married sisters, close blood uh, relatives. The Canaanites uh, practiced religious orgies with near of kin as a, uh, in a kind of an extraordinary thing to do for their, their false gods. So God is telling them something that they already knew and what they were going into that they needed to be just black and white clear uh, on, on all of it. Now uh, today in most uh, modern nations uh, it's against the law to marry near of kin. You can't marry your brother or your sister. It has to be a second cousin twice removed or whatever I don't know where the line lays on that and it's not so much a holiness issue as much as it's a physical uh, issue um, earlier in the book of Genesis and even earlier in the Bible uh, we see where uh, Abraham uh, married Sarah and she was his half-sister and there was no kind of qualm related to it at that point in time and it's generally thought that because those generations were so close to the original creation, so close to Adam and Eve, that the gene pool was still clean enough uh, to be able to handle that kind of close marriage. But now at this point in time in man's history, the gene pool isn't clean enough to do that without introducing, uh, you know, these uh, DNA traits that are kind of negative and affect people physically and mentally as you would intermarry too close in the bloodlines. And so God codifies it and says, uh, no more. That's, uh, that's in the past, but, but this point forward, uh, we, we don't uh, uh, do that. Then he goes on and he uh, says, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. And you shall not uncover her nakedness. Now we look at that and say, duh, I mean, come on. But that was going on. That was going on. People having sex with their parents. The nakedness of 
Your father's wife you shall not uncover. It's your father's nakedness. She belongs to him, not to you. And uh, so this is talking about no sexual relationship with your stepmother. Uh, the nakedness of your sister, uh, the daughter of your father or the daughter of your mother, whether uh, born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. So no sexual relationship, no marriage with a sister or with a half-sister. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for theirs is your, uh, for theirs is your own nakedness. And so, uh, no sexual relationship with your grandchildren. The nakedness of your father's wife, father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. And so, speaking of an adopted sister, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. Uh, she is near of kin to your father. You shall not uncover the um, shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is near of kin to you. And so uh, no, uh, no relationship with an aunt, uh, either uh, physically or, or, or by marriage. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother uh, or you shall not approach his wife she is your aunt and so no uncle or uh, or his wife you shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law she is your son's wife you shall not uncover her nakedness so there was not to be uh, any involvement with a daughter-in-law again we look at things and say how how obvious could things be but they weren't so obvious in those days and increasingly they're not so obvious uh, around the world now we uh, we we enjoy the blessings of of living in a country that does have a judeo-christian biblical heritage so these things are we can look at things and say wow that's these are pretty simple uh, in some ways but not everybody in the world and not every nation and people has a judeo-christian uh, heritage and so you go into different parts of the world and it is a sexual free-for-all. And to, to go through something like this and to read it which send shockwaves uh, through the culture uh, in, in some instances. So even needed today this kind of, of clarity. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. Uh, it is your brother's nakedness. She belongs to him. Now that speaks of the fact as long as the brother is alive. If the brother dies, uh, later on we're going to see that God uh, arranged for what are called Leverite marriages, where if uh, your brother was married to, uh, had a wife, and he died before they bore a son to carry on the name, then if you were in a place to do that, you would marry her, raise up a son, the son would take the deceased uh, man's name so that his name would not be lost in the history of Israel, nor would the property and the wealth and all move from uh, the family. And so uh, this was as long as the brother was alive. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter nor shall you take her son's daughter 
or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. And so you're not to be involved with a woman and her, her daughter or a woman and her granddaughter. They are near of kin to her. It is wickedness. Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. And so not to be involved, obviously, uh, with, with the sister of, uh, of your wife and uh, polygamy uh, forbidden in the law. So it was wrong on, on that basis. If your wife died and, you know, God was involved in, you know, and you felt God's will was to uh, marry uh, her sister and she was in a, a, a condition to be married in, that was okay, but not while they were both alive. Nor shall you approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. So there wasn't to be a sexual uh, a man was not to have sexual relationship with his wife uh, during the period of her menstruation. And so uh, that was in the law. Again, I'm, I'm convinced in order to kind of give her a break and a kind of demanding week of her month that she didn't have to be concerned about uh, being approached in that way. Uh, another thing that's not entirely bad about that kind of one week out of the month kind of thing. By the way, we're not under the law on this. I want to make that clear. I'm not suggesting anything, but I don't want you needlessly under the law. But would, it, it, one of the side benefits of that would be that it would build a bit of discipline in people's lives related to the sexual relationship. To learn how to, to say no or to discipline that side of life, uh, even at least for a week at a time. And it would kind of establish uh, a, a discipline, which is never a bad thing in, in the physical relationship, especially in a very uh, undisciplined uh, culture where it's just like whatever you feel, you, you just, you know, they tell you you can go ahead and do. He said, Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defy yourself with her. No adultery. So he's, he's continuing to be very, very specific. A person might look, if he just stopped right there and stopped in verse 19, someone might say, All right, I'm not to be sexually immoral with a blood relative. God knows who he's dealing with. So he comes in and says, Not only not with a blood relative, you are not to commit adultery with anyone, even outside of, of, of your bloodline. I, I, I like this kind of clarity uh, from, from God. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the no name of your God. I am the Lord. And so in uh, Canaan they worshipped a, a, a God by the name of, of Molech. It was the principal God um, of the Ammonites, which was a nation of people that were near the Canaanites there in, in the Middle East. And the worship of, of Molech involved uh, child sacrifice. And they would... Uh, take this image of Molech in, uh, in clay or, or uh, you know, terracotta or, or metal sometimes, and they would put it in the fire and, and, uh, and heat the thing up until it was just red hot, and there would be an opening here, the arms would be out, there would be an opening, and people would come in and put their newborn children in through the hole and into the fire, and they would offer their children to Molech. That was going on in Canaan and going on in the surrounding nations, and God's says don't do that why would God include it in, in a chapter that's addressing sexual issues because they would offer their children to um, Molech as a um, 
uh, as a fertility kind of thing. Molech was considered to be uh, one of the many gods that had to do with fertility. So they would offer their children in order that Molech would then make them more fertile to have more and more children. They would offer their first child and, and do that. Remember having children was kind of your social security system in those days. So they wanted to have big families. It was in order to buy from Molech, Molech his favor for uh, uh, fertility for the fields, for the crops, for the orchards. And so that's the kind of thing that was going on in, in the, the land where they were going into. And God just spells it out very, very clear to them. No part uh, in that. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So God condemns uh, homosexuality, which was uh, quite rampant in, uh, in Egypt and also in Canaan and the surrounding nations. He gives the uh, added commentary that this is an abomination. I want to spend just a moment on this, uh, just uh, in light of the fact that it's such a high-profile issue today, even among uh, some churches, not Bible-believing churches, but uh, churches that claim to love God and keep His Word and all, and, and they say that uh, homosexuality is, uh, is okay in, in God's eyes. Homosexuality is condemned as sin by God. You, people may like it or they may, not, they may not like it, but the fact of the matter is, is from one end of the Bible to the other, God condemns homosexuality as a sin. It's a sin in, in his eyes. And he's not wishy-washy on it, and he's not fuzzy on it. He's just super, super clear on it. So he condemns it here. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 26. He says, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, talking about lesbianism. And uh, likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burn in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, God says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators uh, nor idolaters. Fornication is heterosexual sin, by the way. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, heterosexual sin, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. So talking about homosexual sin here. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, speaking to the church at Corinth, God, he, he saves people out of these conditions. He's an amazing God. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. We sang about that, huh? It's just as if we'd never sinned. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. And, and when, when Paul writes this by the Spirit of God, he isn't saying that a homosexual person or a person with homo, that has a same-sex attraction uh, sexually, he's not saying that that person can't be saved. But he's saying that they have to repent of their sin of homosexuality in order to be sin, uh, saved, just like everybody else has to repent of their sin. Uh, today, there's this 
uh, groundswell, and it's the only reason that I'm, uh, you know, kind of camping on this a, a little bit, and especially among young people uh, today. But there's this great uh, groundswell of concern among professing Christianities and Christianity, and uh, people are saying things like, um, we, we, they're saying that we shouldn't be so strong as Christians in making a stand on issues like abortion or issues like homosexuality because it's alienating the culture as a result of it and the culture is increasingly seeing us as a, as a kind of a uh, one-dimensional group of people that all we exist to do is to fight against homosexuality and, and to, to fight against uh, abortion and so, so they, they think that, we're, that people like me and in the body of Christ making that stand, making too big of an issue and, and all of that and uh, I even watched a CNN special on they had this kind of I, Never, ever, never watch any kind of a religious thing on CNN. Just don't do it. Um, it's not the medication you'll have to buy afterward. Is just. But they had this, and they got this one guy on there now, and he's been on for a few months, and he's kind of like an ex-pastor, and he's the resident. You know, he's got one foot over here, so he understands the culture and the world, and he knows a little bit about Christians and religion and the whole thing, and and he's just blasting. Uh, Christians in the Christian church, you know, for having become, you know, too, known too much for their stand against homosexuality and, and uh, abortion and these things, and we need to change it and all. And I just think to myself, do, do they really think that if, as, as Christians, we caved on those two issues, that that would satisfy the heart of fallen man and they would say, great, we got what we wanted, we'll be contented, we won't push anywhere in the culture. That's so stupid I can't stand it. I mean, that's just to be ignorant of, of, of a sin nature in our own lives and, and how sin nature operates in people. You cave there and it's just on to the next thing. That's, that's the way the battle runs. That's the way the battle uh, is, is waged. And, and so nothing's ever going to be uh, uh, solved in that way. The culture is just going to begin to push in some other, uh, against some, the biblical standard of right and wrong in some other area of life. That's the way that the whole thing works. And, and some people may not like it. And, uh, but to become a Christian is to enter into a spiritual battle and a moral battle. And it's a battle that we're not allowed to compromise in. And we're not allowed to, to lose. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight, Paul said to Timothy. There's a fight involved in this. One day there won't be a fight. We'll be in heaven and it'll be over. Things. There's a fight right now. You can't let 20% fight the fight while the 80% gets to float on this thing and, and be popular with everyone. We're all called to fight, a fight for God in this, in this world. Fight the good fight, lay hold on eternal life to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Jude chapter 1, verse 3, there's only one chapter. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you concerning, uh, write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. There's a necessity of contending earnestly uh, for the faith. 
Now the weapons of the Christian in this spiritual warfare that we're involved in, it isn't a sword and it isn't jihad. Our weapons are very, very different. We're in a war. Sometimes you use Christian, you know, spiritual warfare in a battle, and these things are, these are, this is biblical imagery. But I, th- I do think we have to be careful to qualify it and describe what it is. We are in a spiritual battle. Our weapons are love and truth. But you don't throw either one of those away, or, or you don't have love, and then you don't, you don't have a, a, a true love and, 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 uh, toward people, and then you don't have the truth anymore. Now you've got nothing that you're offering uh, to people. I, I tell you, I am, am so thankful for everyone who told me the truth from God's Word before I became a Christian. They, just told, they, just, they spoke the Word of God. And what I did with it was what I was going to do with that. They had a responsibility to tell me the truth from, from the Word of God. I'm thankful for that. And I didn't always heed it. I didn't always like it. I certainly didn't live it for many, many years. But I had a right to hear it. And I look at the, at, at the homosexual the community in the United States and the world and all, and I look at them and I figure they're not much different from me. We've all got an Adam nature. We're all drawn into some kind of sin or two or three sins that absolutely want to dominate our lives. We are all alike in that. And I just figure they have a right to hear the truth. Then what you do with the truth is up to you. But you've got a right to hear the truth. And God condemns it as, as sin. So as we sit here tonight, as, as Christians who studying the Bible and all, do you believe that homosexuality is a sin. And if you profess to be a Christian and you say, I don't believe that it is a sin, then your view has been formed by Egypt. It's been formed by Canaan. And it's been formed by an ungodly pagan culture rather than by God. And you need to repent because you're not helping anybody in this fight. You're not helping God. You're not helping people that God is trying to reach. And you need to settle the issue of God's lordship in your life. You are not smarter than Him. Not in this area. Not in any area in life. People have a right to hear the truth. In love, with clarity, they have a right to hear that. That's what we're called to do. So what does a person do? They have homosexual tendencies and, and all. Well... They do what everybody else does. I need to get saved. Have God Almighty come into my life, the person of the Holy Spirit, and then develop a relationship with God that becomes more precious to me than my sin. And then to turn away, you know, from that sin because I love God too much to want to hurt His heart in in this way. And sometimes a person will say, well, won't that be hard? I mean, the sex drive is a very, very strong drive. Isn't isn't that going to be difficult to do? Yeah. Yeah, it will be. One day we won't have to fight it. We won't have to fight against sin. But it is hard. But Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me heterosexual homosexual do you realize that the heterosexual single person that's living for God who is is single they have to say no to just as strong a sexual drive in their life to be faithful to God 
It's not heterosexual, it's not homosexual. It's about being moral and right by God's standard in this, this area of our, our lives. He goes on in verse 22 and says, You shall not lie, or I'm sorry, verse 23, You shall not mate with any animal, bestiality. It is shocking, by the way, to read the statistics for the increasing percentage of bestiality expressed in the United States of America. I mean, the percentages are scary uh, in terms of, of the level. And, and so God comes in and says, I know what I'm talking about. I know what I see every day in this world. You shall not mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. So the condemning of that, you shall not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you, for the land is defiled. Therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. And so God gives the reasons for why these um, Sexual practices are forbidden and why we're not to engage in them. He says it defiles. It defiles individual human beings. This, when God looks at it and says, this is what I have created men and women for. And when they engage in these practices, it defiles them. But it doesn't just defile individuals. It defiles whole nations. This does not bode well for our nation which is becoming more and more sexually immoral, as if that is possible. But that's what's happening here. So it defiles whole nations. And then interestingly enough, God says, it defiles the land itself until the land will vomit the inhabitants out of, of, of the land. In other words, those sexual practices, when this becomes like a prevailing expression of, of sex in, in a nation, even the land is sickened by it. What is vomit? It is the violent expulsion from the body of something that's making the body sick. Even the land looks at it and says, this makes me sick, get it out of here. And, and so it defiles even the land. And so God says, this is why I'm forbidding it. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. You shall not commit any of these abominations, either, uh, either any of your own, uh, any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. Uh, for all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. He's saying to them, ladies and gentlemen, I am kicking these people out of the land because this is how wicked they have become. He said, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it as it vomited out the nations that were before you. So God is saying, don't you come into the land and get your sex education from them. Practice the way that they practice it. Because if you come down to their level, the land will vomit you out in, in the same way. In other words, if I, if I start to live the way that these people are living, I can't say, I'm different, I have a relationship with God or a history with God. It doesn't work that way. 
If we have a relationship with God, there's going to be sexual purity as a part of that. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who, uh, persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. There to be, uh, uh, we don't know always when it talks about being cut off from their people, whether it means, uh, well, we do. We'll get into a couple chapters later. For m- most of these, it was a death penalty. Uh, but, it, uh, but oftentimes it means they're to be cut off from, from contact with the nation of Israel. God did not want this kind of an attitude to get any traction among his people. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so he said, I got a zero tolerance for this stuff. And so you, when, you, when you run into this kind of thing, take care of it and uh, quickly and thoroughly. Therefore you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. And so he closes it. This is his authority for speaking these things uh, into our lives. Egypt and Canaan are examples of what sex will become if man is left to define it on his own. When, when man rejects the, the, the perimeters that God has put upon the sexual relationship, and that is one man, one woman, in the context of, of commitment, the commitment of marriage, this is what happens when people throw off God's instruction for where, where that's to express itself, and they decide, we're going to do this any way we want, any how we want, any time we want, with wh- whoever we want, and God just says, This is what it turns into. And it is God's word and the influence, uh, his influence in the world through the church that keeps that from happening uh, in in the world. And so these laws, they, they were protective. They protected the health. They protected the sanity. They protected the purity. They protected the heart of the individual. But they also protected the family unit. They protected marriages and families. How many marriages are undone through sexual immorality? How many children are in so many directions today because of sexual immorality like is described in the chapter? And God has family, marriage and family, those are institutions of God. Those are the foundations for a healthy nation. And sexual immorality, it's, it's more than just, I want to do my own thing, I want to do anytime I want with whoever I want and all of that, and it only affects me. It doesn't. It erodes family, the family unit, marriages in a nation, which once that gets eroded to a point, now you don't have enough health in that nation for it to maintain any kind of greatness uh, physically, much less having an impact for the kingdom of God and the world. So it's dangerous on a lot of different levels. It's very dangerous, most dangerous of all for God's people. God wrote this chapter to the children of Israel because He's got to bring a Messiah into the world. He can't bring it into the world through Egypt. And He can't bring it into the world through Canaan. And He can't bring it into the world through a group of people that He's called if they're living sexually like Canaan and the Canaanites and like Egypt. 
He wanted to bring his son, Jesus, into this world through a pure people, a holy people, a sexually pure people. And, and it was these laws that protected the nation of Israel to allow God to bring a holy son into this world. So with the children of Israel, sexual immorality was a way, it was, it was a big issue because what God was calling them to do was greater than what he was calling the Egyptians to do or the pagans in, in Canaan to do. They had greater privilege, they had greater responsibility. And so if they fell into the sexual immorality of the nations around them, it would threaten God's very plan of salvation for the world. Now I look at the world and to talk about this issue right here, I know it's not easy. When I was a kid, oh boy, here he goes. When I was a kid, my kids are all grown up and gone. I can't tell them all these stories, so I've got you. <laughs> when I was a kid, I mean, I was born in 1955, so, you know, there was still in the very formative years of, of where I was raised in Napa, California, uh, there was still a strong sense for sexual morality. Um, there was a stigma still attached to sexual immorality, even in junior high and in, in senior high. So that was, that was something that was built into our lives to help us resist the temptations that we all face. Not only at that age, as that, is the, that area is developing in our life, but all the way through our lives. But those were advantages that my generation had that this generation doesn't have in the United States of America. We couldn't even remotely have access to what people are just a click away from. You had to drive to San Francisco to get a dirty magazine. I don't know anything about it, but I mean, the, my, my friend, I mean, you had you had to go out of your way to get to get a hold of, of things and stuff like that. It was good for us, and it was still a nation that, that was was protecting its youth in this way. And I feel so bad at how far things have come, and I feel so bad for you young people when a nation and even sometimes in your own families and all, sometimes it's your own doing, I'm not taking away responsibility sometimes on it, but where there wasn't protection and things were lost before we ever even knew that they were valuable. So I know to go into chapters like this, it can, be, it can hurt a little bit to listen to it and to feel you know, dirty or feel like I'm just a terrible person or extraordinarily you know, terrible. Listen, never, ever, ever expect a Christian, a non-Christian, to act like a Christian. Don't ever put them on that. No, you cannot be a, a Christian without being a Christian without having God Almighty in us. What we are before we come to know the Lord, before we know what's right and wrong, before God gives us a, a desire to live a different kind of life and the power to live it, because God Almighty has come into our lives and, and all. I mean, that's why God makes us new creations and He gives us a fresh start when we become a Christian. Because in a lot of instances we didn't know any better. And, and that's, that's the way that, that it is. So you, you, you look at this and you say, man, that, that's a little hard for me. My B.C. days, or, or you sit here and you're not saved tonight, and some of this is about where your life is right now and all. 
You're not a Christian and, and all. You need to repent of your sin and give your life to God tonight. God will come into your life and He'll make you into a new creation and He'll make you into something else. He'll give you brand new desires to, to live for Him and then, and then you head into to something with a, a fresh start. And, and that's all there for the asking. But for Christians, so I, I look and say, isn't it, sometimes people say, isn't the world terrible and I can't believe what people are doing? I can believe what people are doing. When you become a Christian, of course you're going to do that. So the flesh does. Not just this area, but in all kinds of areas in, in life. But once we become a Christian now, it's altogether different. Our life is about something different now. And God wants this kind of sexual purity in our lives because He has our lives to work with in this world to make an impact for the kingdom of God. We're not like Egypt. We're not like the Canaanites. We're different people. Our God is the Lord, our God, the expert that we give heed to in this area and in all areas of our life. And then it becomes a joy. doesn't mean that it's not hard to, to do that, that there aren't temptations and lots of temptations to do that. But God has a way of making the relationship with Him more valuable than even the strength of the sex drive in our lives. And then He has a way of giving us a love for people that is so great that we want them to see that there's a different kind of life that can be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit and to give them hope that they can come out of their past and begin to live the greatness of this life too. So for us as Christians especially, the stakes are very high in terms of what God has kind of put all the chips on us. You'll excuse the gambling expression. He's put the chips on us to do certain things in this world. And that we, we and we alone can do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so it becomes even more important for us to be holy in these areas uh, of our life. I like it. I like clarity from God. I like directness from God. And he certainly has offered clarity and directness in a very, very important area of, of our lives. But we'll stop there this evening. Pick it up in chapter 20. Or, I'm sorry, we'll pick it up in chapter 19 uh, next week if we're all still around. I'm waiting for that Trump, like most of you, uh, to clear on out of here. Boy, first service had several people come to know the Lord. Second service, first service had uh, uh, one woman right in the back, right back where you, you gentlemen are sitting right there. And uh, so I was leading in prayer, you know, for her to receive the Lord and all got done with it. Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Boy, I thought she was the last of the Gentiles. Fullness of the Gentiles, we clear out of here. And they think about a lot of things up here at a time like that. I mean, in some place, somewhere, the fullness of the Gentiles is going to occur. Boom, we're gone. And uh, so wouldn't that be, whew, and uh, maybe tonight for you. I'm at the worship team, why don't you come on up here? I want them to lead us in worship and give us some time to meditate on the Lord and what we've looked at here tonight a little bit. And, uh, but maybe you sit here tonight and you haven't given your life to the Lord, never trusted in Jesus as your personal Savior and, and uh, begun a relationship with God through Him. There's forgiveness in Him. There's a fresh start in Him. He does make us into something altogether brand new and He wants to do that in your life too. And He's good at it. You're sitting in a room just filled with... Uh, 
Well, you wouldn't want to know who you're sitting next to. You'd clutch your purse so close and check, make sure your wallet's there and, and everything. He does, he changes lives. And you know what? We don't begrudge it. We're thrilled that he's done it. And so there's hope for you.